There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zuf in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf of Ephraim. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah did not. Each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of Heaven's armies at the tabernacle. On the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Penina and each of her children. And although he loved Hannah, he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. So Penina would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same. Penina would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. Once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord, and she made this vow. O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime, and as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. As she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her. Seeing her lips moving but hearing no sound, he thought she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk, he demanded. Throw away your wine. Oh, no, sir. I have not been drinking wine or anything stronger, but I am very discouraged, and I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think I'm a wicked woman, for I have been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. Have you ever felt like you were made to do something? Have you ever felt like you were supposed to do something? Like God had given you the desire to do something, but you were not able to do it. Hannah wasn't able to have children. This is what she felt like she was made for, what she felt like she was built for, and she can't have children. Now, Hannah is shown to be right with God, and her husband, Elkina is shown to be right with God. They go through the right rituals, they do the right things as part of the faith community of Israel, but she couldn't have children, and he loved his wife. Hannah's listed first, likely his first wife. Hannah, uh, Elkina is from the hill country of Ephraim, and so he's probably a farmer. Farmers need farmhands. Farmers need people to give their land to. And he can't give the land to his wife. He needs a son to give the land to. And they don't have adoption agencies. But what they do have is, I guess I'll have to take another wife. And that wife, Penina, literally meaning rival, is given to her, or given to him. And Elkanah has two wives, the wife he loves and the wife that gives him what he needs. Are you getting the picture? Have you ever had to compete for somebody else's affection? When I was in college, my marriage prof called college the supermarket of dating. If you're from South Dakota or Iowa, it was called the high V of dating. And if you're from Minneapolis or the area, it's called the super target of dating. No other time in life have you so many varieties of the same kinds of people. 
And so if you are competing for someone's affection, you are literally competing against hundreds, if not thousands of other people. But when you move into adult life, if, you haven't, if your desire is to get married and you haven't found that person, then you're not just competing against other people, but you're competing against goals, dreams, jobs, desires, stuff, and it gets harder. If you're married, uh, wives, you might not say your husband actually has two wives, but symbolically, you might call the other wife work or exercise, or hunting, or accomplishments, or the kids. And, and men, um, if you're married and you have children, you might have felt like you started to compete with the children for affection as these little creative time, energy, emotion suckers uh, came into the world, your spouse looked at you exhausted, saying, I have nothing left for you. No matter where you're at in life, I think you can say, I've had to compete for someone's affection. And it doesn't feel good, usually. Always wondering, always hoping that someone will, will be there for you emotionally spiritually, relationally. And Hannah is in this place where the one thing that she longs to do in life, she is unable to do. And for for the people of this time and in this culture, it's not just the ability to have children as a medical problem like we see it today. It is absolutely, fundamentally a spiritual problem. Hannah not being able to have children meant that she was cursed by God. And in the one place, in the one time of the year that she might have a sliver of hope when they go to the temple at Shiloh, this is the place that if you know the, the Bible story, that Joshua or that Moses led the people, led by God, led the people out of Egypt into, well, near the promised land. And then Joshua took them into the promised land. And the first place they set up the tabernacle, the religious church building, if you will, was Shiloh. There is huge meaning here. Elkinah's from a region far away. They're religious, they're devout, but the only time they can go is once a year. This one time in this one place where there's this environment where, where God feels even more present, there's hope for Hannah and she prays and Penina knows it. So she provokes to irritate her because she has to compete for one man's affection too. Because she knows that he loves Hannah. Even though she's provided child after child, for her it's not enough. And so she goes in that one place, that one time where Hannah just might have a sliver of hope. Penina is there provoking her, going after her, saying this has to be, this has to be from God. You have to be cursed by God. We don't exactly know the words. We just know that she is so distressed. She can't even eat. She's so oppressed. She feels hopeless. And, and Elkanah doesn't get it. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And what's the answer? No, you don't. And she's depressed. And she's desperate. And so she prays. And how many times... How many months, 
How many years? Likely, how many decades have gone by where Hannah prays at the temple and hears nothing? Where literally it feels like her prayers are bouncing off the top of the tabernacle tent. Nothing. It says that Elkanah gives sacrificial portions to Penina and all her children. They have to be old enough to get it, old enough to carry it. I imagine that it's been decades that Hannah has been praying this prayer. Have you ever felt that desperate? It doesn't even have to be about children. It doesn't even have to be about marriage. It could be anything. And you pray and you hope and you ask and you wonder God, are you listening? Do you hear me? And yet, in those moments, we see Hannah never doubt. We see Hannah never retaliate. But continuing to come back year after year, faithful, even amidst unanswered prayer. As you and I, as we think about our lives, when we're in desperate times where, where months, years, maybe even decades of prayers have gone unanswered, then where do we put our hope? Where do we put our trust? And where do we put our faith? In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed and went back and began eating again, and she was no longer sad. The entire family got up early the next morning and went to worship the Lord once more. They then returned home to Ramah. When Elkanah slept with Hannah, the Lord remembered her plea, and in due time she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I asked the Lord for him. The next year, Elkanah and his family went on their annual trip to offer sacrifice to the Lord. But Hannah did not go. She told her husband, wait until the boy is weaned, then I will take him to the tabernacle and leave him there with the Lord permanently. Whatever you think is best, Elkanah agreed. Stay here for now and may the Lord help you keep your promise. So she stayed home and nursed the boy until he was weaned. When the child was weaned, Hannah took him to the tabernacle in Shiloh. They brought along a three-year-old bull for a sacrifice and a basket of flour and some wine. After sacrificing the bull, they brought the boy to Eli. Sir, do you remember me? Hannah asked. I'm the woman who stood here several years ago praying to the Lord. I asked the Lord to give me this boy, and he has granted my request. Now I'm giving him to the Lord, and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. And they worship the Lord there. Hannah pours out her heart to the Lord. And the priest answers, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you the request you've asked. And then she went away. Able to eat, no longer downcast. What had changed? Really, truly, nothing had changed. If you look at her outside circumstances, nothing was different. And yet, 
for Hannah, everything had changed. Go in peace, Hannah. Not in irritation, not in oppression, not in rivalry. Go in peace. The God of Israel heard your prayers. This isn't a God of the Philistines. This isn't a God of the Amorites. This isn't a God of all the other gods that were around because there was a hundred, if not a thousand gods, images and idols that people worshipped. And in this time, the main rivals of God's people are the Philistines. And the Philistines are the people that were still in the land when Joshua came in. Joshua had lived with Moses since the time he was a boy, and Moses had kept him in leadership all along. And so there was this beautiful transition of leadership between Moses and Joshua. And then Joshua brings all Israel, these 12 tribes united into this land, and God gives them this inheritance. If you read the battles, it's not really Joshua conquering. It's really God coming in and causing confusion time after time after time. And so they're in this place and they give peace in the land. And yet, if you read the end of Joshua, you find out that Joshua says, now, tribes, go to your places. Go to these promised lands and, and completely drive out the people. And what do we find out? They don't do it. And so all along in the next book in When Joshua dies, there's no succession of leadership. So the theme of Judges is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then they did evil, and then the people of the land took over, and then they succumbed to those people's religious ideas, those people's images, those people's idols. And the Philistines are the people that are closest geographically, the ones that they arrival geographically, and the ones they rival spiritually. And the main God, not the only, there's many gods for the Philistines, but the main God that these people look at is Baal. And Baal is the God of fertility. Crops, abundant crops, harvest, and kids. So there is many a story of barren woman who doesn't pray to the Lord God of Israel who prays to the God of Baal the God of fertility, the God who can maybe give life, but not Hannah. Hannah will not pray to this God. Hannah knows there's only one true God who gives life. And that's what this story shows us, is this woman is faithful and righteous, and she prays to that God. And now she has the one thing she's desperately wanted in life. Don't you imagine she holds that thing pretty tightly? If you've literally prayed for a child and waited years and received one, don't you hold it tightly? We went to camp one time with a family who was 10 years older than us and had kids just younger than us. And they got to the camp and they opened their minivan and toys just spilled out. Power wheels and bikes and all this stuff for these two kids that were about six years old. And I thought, wow, that's a lot of stuff. That's... And I had a judgmental moment of materialism. And then I watched them parent, ever so generous, ever so loving. Sure, you can ride your bike around in here. Just don't skid anything. Don't hurt anything. But who cares? 
And I thought about it and I said, well, surely these people have waited years for these kids. They are not going to think like that it's worth wrecking their relationship with these children to go, don't do that in the house or the lodge or whatever. There are just times where people who've waited longer for something desperately hold it, love it, never want to let go of it. And again, it doesn't have to be about marriage or kids. It could be anything in life, a dream that you finally achieve, that, a status that you finally get. And all of a sudden you have that. And, and now maybe you're asked to give that up or to give that back to God. I mean, look at it with me in verse 21 of 1 Samuel 1. When Elkanah, her husband, went up to offer sacrifices to the Lord to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said, after the boy is weaned, I will take him to present him or to dedicate him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Verse 23, do what seems best. Do what seems best to you. Do you kind of hear it in his voice? Like, I'm not touching that. I'm not going to get between a woman and, and her child. No way. I don't. But may the Lord make good his word, or may the Lord keep his word, or may the Lord keep your promise. Now, it's translated and argued what it means, but if you look at the Greek translation of the Hebrew, and if you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, it says, may the Lord make good your word. So I think the version we read of, may the Lord help you keep your promise, is actually probably the most accurate, because does God really, like, Does God really ever not keep his covenant, keep his word, keep his promise? Isn't it always us that have trouble keeping our promises? No, the Lord always makes good his word. The Lord fulfills his vows. It's us that misses it. And so, Hannah, may you keep your promise. And remember, it's a different time and different culture. Weaning isn't three months or six months or nine months. It's two years or three years or four years or more. It's not getting any easier to give up the one thing that she desperately cares about, is it? You hold something longer and longer and longer and it's something you desperately want. It's not any easier to to offer it, is it? I don't think so, but, but Hannah has, is faced with this choice. Is she going to keep her vow? And for us, I think the, the text is, I think it's an easy parallel to say, if you finally received something that you've wanted for life, whether it's a, a person or a relationship, whether it's a, a status whether it's a possession. When you finally received it, if you're asked to give up that one thing, if you're asked to dedicate that one thing back, can you open your hands and offer it? Or do you hold it tighter? Somebody once told me that that we should live our life with an open hand because if God ever comes 
and wants to take that thing, wants to have that, it doesn't hurt as much as when we're grasping it tight. And I never want to give off the theology that God takes stuff from us. It, it's so frustrating to, to hear a religious person or a faith person when, when a tragedy happens, if it's, if it's the death of a child and, and someone comes and says, well, God just wanted, must have wanted that child. Just wanted to take that from you. That's not the God that we see in scripture. We see a God who's generous, a God who has open hands, a God who gives abundantly, abundantly, abundantly before he ever might take something. But I do know in my own life and I imagine in our lives that things that we desperately want, whether it's people or possessions or status or accomplishments, I do know that sometimes those things that we desperately want get in our way of God. And, and God isn't sitting around going, you know what, it's all right, you can take I'll, I'll be second place or third place or fifth place. God says, I am the Lord of all the universe. I want to be first in your life. I don't want to have to compete for your affection. And if that thing gets in the way or that person gets in the way or that relationship gets in the way or that job gets in the way or that status gets in the way, then, then I think we're left with two choices. One, we get rid of that thing. Or two, we dedicate that thing, person, relationship, possession, status to God. And we say, I will give this to you, God, and may you use it for your glory rather than me tempted to selfishly hold it. And, and in an extreme sense, this is what Hannah is doing. She is being challenged to fulfill her vow, I will give this child back to you, God. And we don't know when she does. We just know that while he was still young, she brings him back to the temple. And she says, I am the woman who stood here praying to the Lord, and I prayed for this child. And God has granted me that request of what I asked. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life will be given to the Lord. And there's this really amazing Hebrew wordplay going on here where request and ask and give and given and loan and lent, they're all the same word. They're all shael. And it, it means to give or to give a request or to lend or to loan. Do you catch that? If it's a, I, the Lord has granted me the sha'el of what I sha'eled of him, so now I sha'el him to the Lord, for his whole life will be sha'eled over to the Lord. It will be a loan to God. Do we live our lives as if they're alone from God? Do we view the things we have as alone from the God who owns everything? Are there things in your life and in my life, in our life, that we hold dear? Is it 
Is it relationships, whether it's friendship or children or parents or relatives? Is it possessions? Or maybe our future, our goals, our hopes, our dreams, we hold those things dear, or our time, or our money, or maybe our habits. And we hold those things dear. And holding them dear isn't the problem. Holding them too tightly, though, that's where, where we have to worry. That's where God gets concerned. And so, what might we, you and I, be holding on to too tightly? And if it's getting in the way, then it's two choices. I think it's getting rid of it or dedicating it to the Lord. And so we're going to have a time of offering. And yes, this is about our finances because one thing I've learned in life is money gets in the way of my relationship with God. Money is a constant challenge to trust or not trust God. Will I trust in how much money I have in my bank account to pay all my bills or will I trust in the Lord? So this is no pressure. It's not about... God needing your money or, or restoration you needing your money, but it is about trusting the Lord. And so maybe finances is an area for you that, that you live like this with clenched fists instead of open hands. And so we're going to have a time of offering, a time of financial offering as one part. And this isn't about guilting you into 20 bucks in the offering box. This is about asking, do I sacrifice, whether it's to restoration or other godly missions, to say, I am going to live and give so that I have to trust God. So we're going to have a time of offering, but it's way more than finances. If you got a worship folder, there's a little card in your worship folder. If you didn't get a worship folder, there are extras in the back. There are extra sheets in the back. And this is a time of participation for all of us because there's, it, it's way more than finances. There are things that get in the way. And the Spirit of God might be saying to you right now, you're holding this, whatever this is, with a closed hand. Will you open your hand? Because it hurts way less if it ever is removed with an open hand. Because God can use something in your life and in my life way, way more with an open hand. And so way beyond money, what are those things or that thing in your life. Maybe it's a person or a relationship. Maybe it is a possession. But maybe it's time or goals or dreams or your future. And they're not dedicated to the Lord. Or they need to be removed. They need to be given up. Just pray that you would ask the Spirit of God right now. This isn't about what I need to know or anyone here needs to know, but this is between you and the Lord and us and the Lord to say, what might get in the way? 
God, what gets in the way? And to write it on that sheet of paper and to fold it up and to place it in either this box or this box along with a connection card or an offering. And you might already sacrificially give and do that online. And and so that's wonderful. So it's not just about a check in a box, but it is about trust and it is about offering that up. So as we play this song and sing this song, I invite you to ask God to pray. And as you're ready to offer those things up in this time of worship and in this time of offering. Pray with me. Father God, creator and sovereign Lord, who alone is the one who gives life. God, we, at least I confess that sometimes I I find life in other things that are not from you. Not necessarily sin, but just things, stuff, people, relationships, and, and you don't always come first. And I pray that you would speak to us about anything that might not, or anything that gets in the way, and that we would see our life and everything we have in life as a gift from you, and that we would live open-handed as it being alone from you. You have lent it to us. May our lives, our friendships, our money, our talents, God, our children, if we have them, our time, anything that you might bring to mind, may we see it as a gift, a loan from you. And may we offer those things that might get in the way at this time. Hannah's prayer has been answered. If we go to verse chapter 2, we see that her response to God remembering her and God answering the prayers of this righteous woman is that she not only dedicates her son back to God, but her response is to, to praise him. It says Hannah prayed in chapter 2, and, and probably Hannah sung. Hannah responded with a a hymn or a poem. Uh, If we look at at chapter 2, we see that it's indented in the text, which tells us something's a little different. We see that there's lines that are paralleled and refrain, and we see that that these 10 verses, out of those, really only two actually pertain to Hannah's situation. The first one, my heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord has made me strong. Now I have an answer for my enemies. I rejoice because you rescued me. In verse 5, the childless woman now has seven children, and the woman with many children wastes away. 
These are the only two that really pertain to Hannah's situation, and, and they do, and, and I think they're poetry because I don't know if Hannah actually has seven children now, but I know that in the, in the Bible, seven is a very complete number, and so the woman who has no children, the barren woman, is now has seven children. She is whole, incomplete, destitute, and desperate, and now she's whole. And so she's using a poem or a song or a prayer or a hymn to say these things. Likely, Eli handed her something that was related and said, I think this is an appropriate response, and she took that. But even more than that, I think it's saying way more than that too. Definitely, her rival is silenced. The reason that Alkina has another wife now is negligible. So Hannah can feel a bit vindicated. And, and if Penina says anything about, well, I had the, the children first, she can say, you might have dedicated our, your children to the farm, but I dedicated my children to the Lord. But it's way more than that. It's about God. It's about what God can do in the midst of hopeless situations. This is about a God who can be trusted. This is about a God who shows up in the most desperate situation. This is about a God who cares for needy people. And you know what we do with needy people, right? We avoid them. Because they're needy. And yet, we look at scripture and God says, blessed are those who realize their need for me. They will see God. They will be blessed. And those who are needy are cared for by God. He shows up. It says this over and over. This is a God of an who has no comparison, a God who is king and savior, a God who's committed to justice. It says over and over in these verses in chapter two, this is about a God who brings down the proud and lifts up the righteous, lifts up the humble. This is a theme that we'll see over and over as we go through this book. God takes down the proud, God exalts the humble. In in verse six, it says, God gives both death and life. He brings some down to the grave, but raises others up. He makes some poor and others rich. He brings some down and lifts others up. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. And he sets them among princes, among places of honor. For all the earth is the Lord's, all that's in it. And he will protect the faithful. No one will succeed by their strength alone. Those who fight against God will be shattered because God thunders against them from heaven that God judges throughout the earth. He gives power to his king and he increases the strength of his anointed one. There's not a king yet. But I think the author is trying to bookend here and set something up for what's to come. He will give power to his king that they need because without a king, they're just doing evil in their own sight. But with a righteous ruler, a nation is turned back to God, which is really just about one woman's prayer. 
one ordinary woman who couldn't have the one thing she wanted, so he had to get another wife. But one woman's prayer, one woman's faith, turned the whole nation back to God. Elkina and, and Hannah are seen as righteous. Their son becomes judge, their son becomes deliverer, their son becomes a prophet who, under his leadership, the whole nation turns back to God. But it's certainly not because Elkinah or Hannah or their son Samuel is concerned with looking good. He's concerned, they're concerned with being right with God. Don't we sometimes get concerned about looking good? I would call that pride. But if we're concerned with being right with God, that's about humility. And God exalts the humble and he takes down the proud. And this God is a God that has no comparison. It says there is no one holy like God. There is no one besides you, God. There is no rock, immovable, unchangeable one like our God. This is the God who reveals himself in the person of Jesus. This is the God who says, I have come that they might have life, have it abundantly, have it to the full, have it in nowhere else but God. In a world and an age where people find life at that time in Baal or other gods or other idols, God is trying to set up, I am the God of true life. I think if we were to reflect on the culture that we live in, we would see that there are lots of things competing for our attention and our life. There might be a lot of places that you and I find life outside of God. And this, this hymn or this poem or this prayer, whatever it is, it is saying find life, find success, find significance in God alone, the God of Israel, the Lord God, the God who reveals himself in Jesus, the God who is holy, the God who's trustworthy, and the God who's strong. This is the God. And this isn't about, this is good theology, but this isn't about theology. This beautiful prayer that kind of foreshadows the rest of the whole book or both volumes of the book of Samuel is not just about good theology. It's about a relational response to and with God. That's what Hannah's doing here. Hannah's giving a relational response to a God that she has experienced, not because she's heard from him, because she hasn't directly. Not because she's seen him, because she hasn't seen him face to face, but because she knows that he's real. And as we just finished a whole series called Why? Why do people do the things that they do? Why do Christians specifically do the things they do? And we ended with, why should we have this relationship with God? We ended with John seventeen three. This is life. All of life, eternal life. To know, know, relationally, intimate, know, the one true God and Jesus who he revealed himself in. That's life. 
Same thing here. The goal of all of life is to have this relational response with the real God, the true creator, the God who knows everything. Hannah knew this God. Hannah responds to this God. Hannah finds life from this God. If you don't know this God, as Hannah comes to read the prayer, and as we respond in song to this God, I invite you to, in your prayers, back to this God, talk to him, and ask what this means for your life. How do I relationally respond? How do I relationally respond to this God? Have I given over my life as a loan to this God? My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord has made me strong. Now I have an answer for my enemies. I rejoice because you rescued me. No one is holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Stop acting so proud and so haughty. Don't speak with such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows what you have done. He will judge your actions. The bow of the mighty is now broken, and those who stumbled are now strong. Those who were well-fed are now starving, and those who were starving are now full. The childless woman has now seven children, and the woman with many children wastes away. The Lord gives both death and life. He brings some down to the grave, but raises others up. The Lord makes some poor and others rich. He brings some down and lifts others up. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sends them among princes, placing them in seats of honor. For all the earth is the Lord's, and he has set the world in order. He will protect his faithful ones, but the wicked will despair in darkness. No one will succeed by strength alone. Those who fight against the Lord will be shattered. He thunders against them from heaven. The Lord judges throughout the earth. He gives power to his king. He increases the strength of his anointed one.